Recorded live in previously sunny downtown Newtown, this is Rancho Notorious, a podcast about movies and other cool stuff. You can find this and all the other episodes of the show at funeralsandsnakes.net forward slash Rancho Notorious. Everybody to season three, episode four of Rancho Notorious. I'm Dan Slevin, and here with me in Wellington, New Zealand, Kaylee Carruthers. Welcome back, Kaylee. Hi, great to be here. How has your week been? It's been insane, but I was able to sneak away early today. Of course, being Rancho Day. Have they Wednesday. noticed you that you're gone? Oh yes, I make sure to say goodbye to everyone. Um, but Bill is actually still up in Auckland, so he doesn't know where I am. <laughs> Sneaking out. Indeed. And, and the reason why Bill is in Auckland is because we are approaching the end of week one of the 2015 New Zealand International Film Festival, uh, which means if it's the end of week one in Auckland, it means that we are on the verge, the cusp, if you like, of the Wellington leg of the festival, what used to be known, and I'm still nostalgic for, the Wellington Film Festival. I think quite a few people are quite are still quite nostalgic for it. I'm going to try and bring back that hashtag. <laughs> Do it. Yeah, well, we make sure to hashtag Wellington when we're talking about Wellington things, but Wellington Film Festival is quite a lot of hashtag to take up a tweet, you know? Yeah, true, true that. Sacred Wookton. character. Wookton. Woof. Actually, I, I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to count back and work out with... I think it might be like it would have been the 49th Wellington Film Festival or something like yeah, that. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, so mm-hmm. maybe I'll just do Wugton 49 or something. <laughs> That'll be my... You know, because you've got to be tight. WGN 49? WGN. WFF 49? Yeah, true. WFF 49. That would work. Um, now, of course, uh, I discovered this afternoon, late this afternoon, uh, that I, I'm not physically unable to Instagram, I can do it, and I did, I just sent my first Instagram uh, this afternoon, it's, yes, thank you very much, uh, and of course in doing so I realised that actually Rancho Notorious needs an Instagram account because, well, we're everywhere else, mm. we, we really should be, so um, look out for that, um, and we will be probably taking lots of photos of the Rancho Notorious kitten. Yes. <laughs> Arthur, who, if you, once the music dies down, you might be able to hear him wailing outside the door. <laughs> um, because uh, he's kind of lonesome at the moment, and he can't come in here because he eats electrical stuff. So mm. I, um, I just imagine he's out in the lounge, sitting on the couch, like just watching the stereo, listening to our, our voices. Actually, that's true. He may be soothed. Yes. Soothed by our voices, yes. as opposed to enraged by our voices, which is what happens uh, in most cases. Anyway, now the, just to, just to uh, remind you that uh, this is not actually live as you're listening to it. Um, we're recording this on the night before the Wellington Film Festival starts, and by the time you listen to it on Friday Two morning, before the festival starts, yeah, yes. uh, you, that's right. Uh, you 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 will be listening to this at the same time. We are nursing our opening night hangovers from the gala. Uh, that's right, because of course the gala isn't an official night, is it? In terms no, of the program, it's, it's, no, not, it's just no. for knobs and special people like us, <laughs> like ourselves, um, invited guests, and uh, and of course. Um, uh, 
Who's your sponsor? Your, who your lawyers? It's the Russell McVeigh. Russell Weller, McVeigh. That's right. Wellington Gala. See, there we go. By 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 pretending to forget their name, I've actually managed to focus attention on your main sponsor, <laughs> and uh, so they've got extra added value for money there. So good on Russell McVeigh. Looking mm. forward to your hospitality uh, tomorrow night, mm. and uh, we're going to watch Noah Baumbach's While We're Young, mm-hmm. which I've already seen, and mm. it's so funny. It's great, isn't it? Oh, my goodness. So funny. And, uh, yeah, so really looking forward to seeing that on a big screen with a full house. Yeah. And Noah, I, I really enjoy Noah Baumbach's film. So if you do have a chance to go watch this in Wellington or Auckland or wherever the it's coming to a festival near you, highly recommended. Very funny. Great comedy for adults and kidults alike. Yeah. Um, the Just uh, last, last Thursday, um, I did my normal... Uh, uh, segment on Radio New Zealand's nine to noon program, uh, and oh, were you on Radio New Zealand? I was on Radio New Zealand. Were you, were you on Radio? I New was Zealand? on Radio New Zealand. <laughs> Do, and were you it's talk- the new Telluride. And were you talking about the festival as well? No, I wasn't. Because that's not really no. That's entirely si- Simon, Simon Simon Morris gets to talk about the festival. I was talking right. about the other films, right? And we'll get to talk about those when we do our, our chart rundown a little bit later on. But anyway, so I t- um, I turned up at uh, Radio New Zealand for what is normally it's supposed to be a twelve minute segment. Usually, it ends up being an eight minute segment because other stuff runs long and it's the last thing before the show ends. Um, and I got told by the producer uh, that Catherine Catherine Ryan, the host of the show, she's not feeling very well, so she might need you to sort of just carry that. Um, that segment I went yes sure no it's fine she's I, I, I can handle it luckily I had a list of about 20 films that I'd uh, watched prior <laughs> it, for, for the festival previews that I'd watched so I knew that I could cover most things but um, she, I go into the studio and she's looking white as a sheet like she's looking really really ill and various producers uh, for uh, Radio New Zealand are running around like mopping her brow with damp uh, paper towels and she's looking really the worst for wear it's 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 you know and i'm trying to stay calm and all of this and she's going i can't do this i can't do, i can't finish the show i can't someone else is gonna have to to do this and then uh, the song finishes and she ha- musters up enough energy to intro me and the festival and i start my spiel and then she leaves and has to has to uh, go and lie down or find a bucket or whatever it is that she ended up having to do. And so I'm essentially alone in the studio with 12 minutes to fill, pretending I'm still talking to Catherine because it's not cool to say, to to, to like panic. Mm. And, um, and various producers occasionally sort of, uh, sort of uh, looking around. And then uh, the wonderful Lynn Freeman, who, Sits who in. I get to chat with. Yeah, on that's right, you do, exactly. And she sits in for Catherine uh, when Catherine's not there. She came down from her office just for like the last um, five minutes or so. And she would, this is not great radio, what I'm about to do, but she would, she, she would, uh, she sat opposite me while I was talking, while I was basically ranting breathlessly about the film festival. Um, and she would like make eye contact and do all those things that are really helpful, but she didn't say anything because she didn't want to interrupt me and then have to explain why she was there and Catherine wasn't. And she would just look at the clock occasionally and like flash like five fingers, say five minutes. Mm -hmm. And I had to keep, just keep (laughs) keep 
until about 30 seconds to the pips and then uh i finished and and lynn just sort of took us took us to the took us to the bridge and took us to the news and it was we're gonna put i'm gonna put a, um, a link to it in the show notes because it was one of the the most interesting and f- most challenging radio experiences i've i've ever had basically a 13 minute and 37 second monologue uh, about this year's New Zealand International Film Festival. Uh, but I got to cover a lot of ground. You know, we had Bill Gosden on the show here last week, and uh, after the um, after we'd finished recording the show and we were having dinner, he asked, you know, how many films would you normally be able to cover in that sort of, in that 19 segment? And I was saying, well, you know, usually it's three commercial films, and then it might be... Uh, five or six if I'm really stretched and uh, if I you know, if I get an extra two or three minutes then it could be a bit more I got through 20 so yay yay for the New Zealand <laughs> International Film Festival and for me thanks Dan <laughs> right, talking of uh, the Bill Gosden episode of the show that is uh, still available to listen to on our website and on iTunes it will hopefully be available for, for all of time for all time yeah we'll be sent into space one day yeah that's right and I just want to say that if you haven't heard that, I suggest that you stop listening to this show now, go back to it, listen to that one, because it is kind of important that you listen to these things in the right order, uh, because it's not just uh, an extended interview with Bill Gosden from the uh, the New Zealand International Film Festival, but it's also uh, an interview with the director Christian Petzold, the maker of Phoenix, and uh, Daniel Jungi from Being Evil. So there's a whole lot of stuff there uh, that will warm you up for this particular uh, festival episode. We have a special guest uh, on the show this week, um, Doug Dilliman, who uh, writes for the Lumiere Reader and is a a film aficionado, a film buff, uh, and a, a, a film editor. And, and a filmmaker. The filmmaker himself, exactly, that's right. Yes, a feature film director. Uh, and uh, he has had a very, very good week at the New Zealand International Film Festival in Auckland, and he'll be joining us a little bit later on to uh, give us his rundown of what he has experienced so far. So stay tuned for that. In addition, as if that wasn't enough, uh, we have uh, a rare interview with the uh, one of the most interesting directors working in the world today, the director of Bavarian Sound Studio and the Duke of Burgundy, which is in the festival this year, Peter Strickland. I, I spoke to him on the telephone last week, so we'll be slipping that in as well. But it's time we should probably get on with it. I noticed that um, the rest of the family has arrived, arrived home, which means that, uh, and I hope we've left some guacamole for them. Um, and uh, and that they'll, they'll be comforting Arthur the kitten. Uh, uh, but we should um, check out what's been going on in the mailbag in the last uh, uh, week or so. Yes. So Fred Thompson uh, sent us his two-word review from Enzif title Victoria, One Shot Wonder, breathtaking technical achievement. Narrative was a bit OTT, but the two leads kept me engaged. Claire Couré has sent us two two-word reviews. Great double up. Uh, fave, to my fave film podcast, Rancho Podcast, Amy the Movie is Soulful Cinema, and Magic Mike XXL is Mag- Magic Manganello. I have to agree. <laughs> yeah. We can talk, we can, uh, talk about, uh, about that one a little bit later on. And, um, and by that one, you mean Magic Mike. Yeah. 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 <sighs> Not quite so effective on radio, is it, Magic Mike? <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> we'll get to it. Um, do, 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 do. When we when we have an Instagram account, and you're going through the mailbag, you're just going to have to describe people's pictures. Yeah, to yeah. Us, it'll it'll 
It'll be descriptive audio right. of the photos. Yeah. Picture of kitten. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Reese Pie tweeted uh, her favorite quote from our last uh, episode, which was, people have to stop giving Jai Courtney jobs. Yeah, but he has an almost nude scene. Just just reflecting on that, Graham. And thanks very much to Reese Pie for getting our, <laughs> our, um, our letterboxed account right bang up to date. And checking in with some of our guests, actually, to make sure that uh, no two-word review was left unturned. Exactly. Chris Horman, also known as The Merca on Twitter. Two-word review for Love and Mercy, Heavenly Harmonies. And from Fred Thompson again. Two-word review for Ant-Man, Diminutive Delight, read brilliantly mixes comic touches with heft and emotion. Hilarious, heroic, and full of heart. There's so many two-word reviews. I'm, I'm just going to stop there, because there's so it's, it, it is worth it is worth people scrolling uh, back through them, particularly at festival time, because t- you know it, when there's 150 films to choose from in a festival program, uh, the two word review really comes into its own, doesn't it? If you're going to have to you know make a snap decision about whether you're going to go and see something or not, two words is probably about as much as anyone can um, can handle. So do scroll uh, back through those and. Um, um, thank you very much for, for sending them in to us. I'm going to sneak in one more, though. Another from Fred Thompson, because he's just been on a roll. Uh, re- because this film has been dividing audiences on Twitter quite a bit, two-word review for The Tribe, wordless masterpiece, brutal, riveting, a truly unique, immersive experience. This is why Enzif is so good. Have you seen The Tribe? I have not seen The Tribe. I'm very much looking forward to it. Um, it's... It's definitely dividing people because it, it there is there are no subtitles. It's completely in sign language. So you have to read the body language and the emotions of the characters as they go through um, no subtitles. the film. No subtitles. All right. completely in, in Ukrainian sign language. And I say Ukrainian sign language because there are multiple sign language languages out there, including New Zealand sign language. Um, so if you, ha- if you do know sign language, it'd be interesting to know if you understand what they're signing, how different it, Ukrainian sign language is from New Zealand sign language or ASL or whichever sign language, you know, um, but yeah, pr- very, very intense, very, very intense drama. So I'm so looking forward to seeing it. The big news for the week, though, uh, would appear to be that the, uh, New Zealand box office report is back to Comic Sans. And you know what is so disturbing? Seeing Magic Mike XXL in Comic Sans. Like, I can't unsee this. Like, wh- wh- what's... Wh- why? Why? It was looking so good in old-fashioned so old conservative aerial. And the and thing that doesn't make sense is, like, from weeks in release onwards in the chart, it's all, like... I don't Times, know, New, Times Roman. New Roman normal people fonts. <laughs> but you've got... The film title and the distributor and everything else in Comic Sans. So who who's come back from holiday? What? <laughs> what? <sighs> okay, so but setting that aside, squinting, squinting at the New Zealand no, box office. No, you close one eye and cross the other. That's <laughs> what you do. <laughs> from the uh, Motion Picture Distributors Association, we're very grateful to them for putting these uh, stats together, yes. no matter what format they come in. Um, top five do you want, or do you want to work your way back maybe seven seven yeah so in at seven all the way down from three Ugh. yeah big drop terminator genesis man that is that just that just landed like a stone didn't it like <laughs> a, like i was gonna say a rock but actually rocks more entertaining if you know <laughs> um you just wanted me to start at seven so you could use that joke um <laughs> in at six down from five jurassic world still hanging in the top 10 there after six weeks in release not bad in at five down from four magic mike xxl which 
if you heard my stint on Radio New Zealand, I couldn't get through this without laughing. I was basically in tears. It was great. It was did a you, great review. Did you... Did you? I haven't heard it, so uh, oh, give me the pricey. Give me the give me the short version, the two word version, maybe. Um, did you enjoy it? Oh, it was brilliant. It was. I loved it. It's and one of my favorite films of the year. <laughs> I just. I. I really enjoyed it. I, it's a, that 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 use more of, than the first one. That use of Backstreet Boys was borderline genius. Mm. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. Go see it, everyone. Go see it. It's, it's hilarious. Funny, yeah. It's heartwarming. It, it's trashy. It, it's trashy, but it, it and it respects all of its characters, and everybody gets an arc, and it's respectful of weirdness. It's respectful of difference. It's expect. It's respectful of different kinds of taste. It just accepts that everything exists, and that we, if we're going to love people, we should love all people, no matter what. And you know, like that's about as happy a thought as I've had leaving a cinema you know I, I had a fantastic time watching it and i can imagine you know i don't buy very many movies nowadays like i don't necessarily need to have like modern movies in my house but that might be one that when it comes out i'll i'll you know deserves a place on the on the shelf did you did you i'm sure i've told you did you know you can get the first magic mic for ten dollars on blu-ray at the warehouse stop it no i will not stop it because i bought it <laughs> And I need to watch it once and well, it's over. Yeah, unfortunately, now that I now that I know I really love Magic Mike XXL, I'm going to need like some kind of box set arrangement. Mm. Um, I, I, I don't think there's going to be a third though, because if there's a third, Channing isn't going to be involved. He's like, no, I'm done. And and he and and what a what a way to leave the leave that world behind, you know? Yeah. Like it was, yeah. So no, there won't be a third one. Would would undoubtedly be some kind of cheap, tawdry, straight to video yeah. version. Yeah, it'd be um, like after Channing left, step up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, just doesn't matter anymore. Yeah, exactly. Um, opening at number four, Paper Towns, which, right. did you see it? Yeah, we uh, we went to see that uh, last week, and it was one of those radio preview um, mm. gigs with a, with, with a radio station. The, the promo, the, and I'm allowed to say this, I think, because I think that's the technical term for what they are, the promo girls. Uh, uh, really looked like they'd rather be anywhere else. Like it was the least enthusiastic. Hey, we've got a goodie bag. Is anybody? Can anyone tell us who like the name of one of the actors is? And we'll give you. A, and there's a goodie bag here full of. Okay, it was it was like that. It was just completely um, unenthusiastic, and they mm. could not wait to get. They didn't stay for the film. They never stay for the film. But they should pretend that they're going to stay for the film. Um, anyway, so Paper Towns is uh, the new uh, John Green. Adaptation. You remember the fault in our stars, and I think that um, this was greenlit uh, before the fault in our stars even came out. Like they just knew mm. that they were going to have this massive hit on their hands, mm. and that uh, the books were going gangbusters. And so they just went, "Look, where's another of his books? Let's get it out." Now this one isn't um, so much of a uh, weepy, uh, but it's set in that uh, teenage uh, universe, and it's a sort of high school movie about uh, a young. Uh, guy a sort of new not quite nerdy but nebbishy and shy guy who has a massive crush on the girl who lives across the road from him who's like you know scorching hot and all that sort of stuff eyebrows on fleek she she is the she is the epitome of the manic pixie dream girl that (laughs) we've heard so much about and seen and we are so tired of frankly she it it really is a, a, a cliched um character Anyway, she disappears uh, 
after taking him on a, on the like the night of his life uh, and he thinks that she's left him some clues as to where she might be and that she wants him to go follow her and so he enlists his school friends to go and on this road trip to to try and track her down um and it is dull and unbelievable and it is it's it felt to me like they managed to wring the least possible drama out of that like the the the, the minimum mm. possible drama out of a particular situation and then just rely on how good looking the cast is and and it's it's almost as if you're ex- being expected to fill in all of the gaps with your own American high school memories. Of course, we don't have those, um, but you know, it's it, it's it's kind of nostalgia. Um, yeah, and and we're supposed to also admire characters who you just want to shake and ask them to wake up to themselves. You know, <laughs> like really, is this this is not cool behaviour. So no, we we really didn't like Paper Towns at all actually we were um you know i think when the fault nurse stars came out last year um karen and i were the only two people in the theater not sobbing but it, at least we understood why people would be mm. <laughs> it was this is just rubbish <laughs> there we go there we go yeah. uh in at three down from two inside out still beloved by many oh so good in at two down from one minions and swooping in or crawling into the number one spot ant-man yeah we should do we should, uh, you've seen that one haven't you yes did I you have. see that in advance of your radio new zealand was it was your radio new zealand review this sunday or no, last, sunday? last sunday okay so you just did this one for fun mm. or for us yeah, well, and I really want to see Ant-Man. I'm a huge Edgar Wright fan, um, but I think that was sort of, for me, the film's downfall because the whole time all I could think of was what would have this been like if Edgar Wright directed it. And I feel like a lot of Edgar Wright fans may fall into that trap as well where it's hard to actually enjoy it. There's some strands of his story. He's still an mm. executive producer and got a story credit on and it. And a script writing credit. Yeah. yeah. So there's obviously still ideas of his and it's mm. a story credit, I think. Yeah, yeah. and uh, you can definitely tell they're jokes of his. It's just that he like it it's like a different another director couldn't pull off edgar wright jokes the way edgar wright would pull his jokes off mm. and the whole thomas the tank engine thing seems a bit strange as well because it's like i don't know yeah i mean it was funny but also they put all the the funny bits in the trailer and paul rudd looks weird when he's that slim and it it was it was fun and it was entertaining don't get me wrong mm. but i just I couldn't look away from the the severed Edgar Wright involvement of uh, it. Yeah, and so uh, we I, or I, Evangeline Lilly's wig. Yeah, that too. Um, I I was really disappointed by it because uh, it ended up being just a traditional origin story with a very a really ordinary villain. Um, n- not a not a fun villain. Uh, at but all. I, it was great to see that actor in a, in a Corey Stoll is that his name? Yeah. yeah, it was great to see him outside of um, House of Cards. <laughs> yeah, true, and because he's, he's been in other films, just yeah. that's true. But but it, but it's essentially a one note a one note yeah. performance that he that he that he's giving, and he's not really offered very much from a script point of view. And then after all of that, we realise that actually this is the entire purpose of this film is to uh, to replace the Avengers whose contracts are about to finish, right? So mm-hmm. all we're doing is just setting up future Avengers films. Now, one day, please, can these things actually stand 
on their own two feet so you can uh, you can enjoy them. Enjoy mm. a beginning, a, a middle, and an end. Uh, what did you think of Paul Rudd? Action um, hero. Yeah, but, I mean, Paul Rudd's always great, but he also has a very specific humour that he usually carries through in his films, and it, was, it wasn't it was quite... I mean, it was it was there... I don't, I, I don't know. I, I, just, I, was dis, I was disappointed. I was let down. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I really wanted to like it. And it's weird, because when it started, it had... When the film started, it had more of that uh, Scott Pilgrim vibe to it than, than a Marvel film. Um, yeah. But then it sort of went more into Marvel territory, and it's just... Paul Rudd, Paul Rudd has a, uh, an... Un- People don't realize this, but he, as a as a Broadway dramatic actor, he has a tremendous reputation. Like, um, you know, Broadway audiences are used to seeing him in sort of big heavyweight dramas, and you know, it's kind of hard to reconcile that that talent with the the roles that he gets asked to play in Hollywood all the time. You know, which he can seems to be able to sleepwalk through. Mm. You know, it doesn't seem like it's particularly a huge amount of effort gone into it um michael douglas uh i wasn't expecting to enjoy but actually gave gave something of himself yeah seeing weird michael or sorry seeing weird seeing young michael douglas was weird the like cg michael douglas cg yeah because <laughs> like that, has he ever actually looked that young <laughs> and in, in that in that sort of pre-credits sequence uh and um uh roger sterling from Mad Men, uh play, oh god roger basic, sterling yes. basically as roger sterling with a mustache it was like <laughs> Wow, Roger Stur- is, is so. Are we going to incorporate the Mad Men universe into the Marvel oh, spoilers. universe? Spoilers, spoilers for Mad Men. I know you haven't made it through yet, but yeah. Roger Sterling does get a mustache later. So, oh my god, that's, <laughs> so it is just Roger Sterling. <laughs> that, that's awesome. That means that the Mad Men universe and the Marvel universe are the same universe. Yes. Brilliant. All right, what's going on in Australia? I don't know why we bothered doing uh, at this time of the year. I don't know why we bothered doing all the other countries because they are all <laughs> the same, right? So Australia, uh, number five, Mignon, uh, number four, Inside Out, number three, Paper Towns, Magic Mike XXL at two, and Ant Man at one. In North America, we have Jurassic World at number five, Inside Out at number four, Trainwreck at number three, which I'm really looking forward to and I hope doesn't suck. In at number two, Minions, and number one is Ant Man. So joining us on the line from Auckland, Doug Dilliman, uh, filmmaker, film editor, and Lumiere reader contributor. Uh, you happen to be, well, not happen to be, it's because you live there. It's not like it was an accident or anything, but you uh, have been in Auckland for the last week where the New Zealand International Film Festival has been going great guns. And, you know, those of us in Wellington, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a, since they brought this into one big festival and social media means we can now see what other people are experiencing there's a definite sense that anybody who's not in Auckland is kind of missing out. Like I, I feel it all this week. I'm seeing people's tweets and I'm going, Oh, and you know, yeah, well, if it makes you feel better, Dan, um, I spent my, uh, Thursday and Friday, uh, far away from it myself because I would actually traveled to Mexico, uh, last week for my brother's wedding. So this, um, I, I've had a little bit of that. It's a, I can't complain, obviously. It was a fantastic trip. But uh, I wanted to squeeze in as much as I could, so I landed Saturday morning at 7 a.m. from L.A. to uh, Auckland, and by that evening I'd seen most of three films uh, of what I managed to stay awake during. So uh, I, I've been trying to pack as much in as I can from coming back from that, but I feel a bit behind everyone else who I've talked to who's taken days off work and who is there for the opening night, which sounds like the lobster went over fantastically. 
uh, across pretty much all audience spectrums. And, uh, yeah, I've, I've managed to see, uh, I think I'm on seven or eight films now uh, in the theaters here. And uh, getting back in the Mighty Civic is always a fantastic treat. And How is she looking? She's looking as good as ever. Uh, you know, it's uh, it's always a glory to see the flamingo and uh, sit under the stars. And um, I packed in there for Amy Saturday night, with uh, which was a sold-out show. And it's always nice to have that sort of um, big vibe. And then um, I also saw a pigeon set on a branch reflecting on existence there Sunday night. With Holy a much more, uh, cow. Self-selected crowd. What an amazing um, experience to watch a film like that in, a, in an environment like that one. I, that must be the grandest place that that film will ever play. <laughs> most, most likely. I had a similar um, rapturous experience in terms of getting to see, you know, a, a full kind of art house, but beautifully photographed film when they played the great beauty there. Uh, was it two years ago now? Mm. I guess it was two years ago. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, you know, some of those beautiful films like uh, The Duke of Burgundy, which I'm seeing tonight, which I'd love to see on that screen, is only playing at Queen Street. Um, but, you know, you take what you can get. And um, there's a lot that's being given this year. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about um, the, the, the that pigeon movie. Um, can you explain to us and to our listeners what that film is about and why they should pay attention to it? Or should they? No and maybe. Um, so <laughs> roughly speaking, um, I, I think um, David Larson said something about it like uh, Roy Anderson puts the dead in deadpan. And I'm not sure I can top that as far as a capsule description. Uh, but uh, Roy Anderson's uh, a Swedish filmmaker, and this is his third in a trilogy, the first being Songs from the Second Floor and the second being You the Living. And You the Living for me was a highlight of uh, the 2007, I think it was, film festival. Uh, and he works very slowly. This is his first film since then. And he'll shoot one scene at a time from a static camera position and build these astonishing, astonishing sets and basically pull off what's sort of like the most abstract Monty Python sketch in slow motion um, with obscure Swedish political undertones that is this incredibly dry humor that it, and occasionally will just have these incredible uh, coup de cinemas in it, which either which can blow your mind when you're sitting in a bar and suddenly a horse ch comes charging through the door and what you thought was just a simple set, you know, suddenly has two... 200-person strong army charging through behind it. Um, I would say in general that and most of the other films I've seen thus far fall under the hardcore cinephile. Uh, you want to see something you're not going to get to see anywhere else. You want to see something you're not going to get to see anything like it um, rather than the always completely satisfying uh, category. So that's a self-selecting audience. And yeah, Arabian but, Nights, which I saw all three volumes of, wow. also falls in that. Um, Isn't this how it should be, though? Isn't this how festivals should be? You know, that, um, yes, there's always going to be those crowd pleasers and, uh, and, and the lottery now about whether films are going to come back to the big screen or not. Nobody, you know, it's, it's getting harder and harder to tell these things. But at the same time, isn't this you know, where, where those of us that just adore art house cinema get to wallow. Yeah. Well, uh, that's usually my argument as well. And I think it may be the jet lag this year. That's leaving me a little bit. Um, you know, I saw some, um, breezier titles in the run up 
to it, like uh, City of Gold, the um, uh, documentary about L.A. food writer Jonathan Gold, and um, having um, mostly set through rather intense art house fairs so much, I kind of, I'm, I'm ready for a little bit of a puffy break before I hit the uh, next one, but I like tomorrow night I've got Balab Kayan, Memories of Overdevelopment, you know, which is another 140-minute uh, one and so I, th- I think it's just like anything, you know. Uh, the it, ideally you have a balanced diet, and because you only have this two weeks, you're trying to fit in as much um, austere art house cinema or, or otherwise uh, not necessarily audience friendly uh, film, and that can be a, a great challenge uh, if you're not if you're jet lagged like I am, to be quite blunt. Well, it is, uh, it, it, also, when you talk about um needing to cram needing to cram all this in there are people who are watching multiple films every day you know this is uh this is a buffet where you know your your plates your your plates are full and you're going back with another plate to fill that plate and you know (laughs) is this i know this is the only way that we can see these films on the big screen but is this still it does it serve those films to be um, binging quite the way that, w- that that we do? Well, not always, and I, I, I feel like we're taking a slightly negative turn. I don't want to um, talk negatively about the film festival because I think what they do is great. It's more of a, um, it's more unfortunate that there aren't other entities that are helping to bring these films at other times of year, or bringing the films, films like say Stray Dogs by Sai Ming Liang, which they didn't program, which is would be a great big screen film. We'll never screen here now because they didn't pick it up. The new Lev Diaz, things like that. Um, You know, if if they don't back it, then it's gone, but you're right. I don't think it does serve them well. And I, I mean, I've over the years, I've gone from um, doing five film days every weekend to, I, I just have a hard limit of not doing more than three, but my friend Nigel, for instance, has managed to optimize his schedule to fit in six films next Saturday. Wow, and I just don't even know how you make those kind of turns, especially if you're engaged with him and go from something bucolic to something quite intense to something quite abstract and back and forth. And yeah. um, I'm I'm forced because of uh, work uh, commitments to limit myself to one a day, and it's got it's you know one evening session, and uh, and and I miss those those days where you just completely. Uh, um, allow the festival to wash over you, but at the same time, uh, I, I don't know if I have the stamina for for it anymore. I think if you get the right run of films, it's pure magic. I mean, there was one day, and these aren't the most um, obscure films, but I think my first day of the festival a few years back was um, uh, This Must Be the Place, Killer Joe, Moonrise Kingdom, and Cabin in the Woods all back to back to back to back. And it was just a lo- lo- really well-paced uh, run of four films that I wound up really liking, um, in one or two cases loving. And uh, it, felt, it felt easy. It felt great. But I've had other days where, you know, you get three films in and you just want to curl up and go home. But uh, so I, th- I think there is an element over the years of finding your right um, relationship to it. And, you know, let's be honest, you know, this isn't... Um, digging ditches for a living at the end of the day. Um, but you are spending money on it. You are spending time. And you do have, I mean, the incredible FOMO of everybody else saying that they've seen the best film ever. And if you see something that doesn't quite gel with you and you pick the wrong thing out of your 150 film 
set of options for your limited number of slots, it's always a bit disheartening or maybe encourages you to try to squeeze in that fourth or fifth film. I know that I really want to see Song of the Sea, which everybody's been raving about who saw it last weekend and which is playing the Civic this weekend, the uh, animated film that was an Oscar nominee a year or two ago. And the thing, the thing is that um, you, you mentioned again 150 films plus in the, in the program every year. It means that the festival itself is like, I sort of liken it to a, a mountain and, and everybody's seeing a different angle of that mountain and nobody, nobody's festival is going to be exactly the same. Um, and so you have to... You, you, FOMO is is the probably the most pointless <laughs> emotion to have around the festival because you you you, you can't you know um, we I was just thinking uh, when you were talking about uh, the uh, Anderson's pigeon film and uh, you know I've I have seen the lobster and I've seen while while we're young and I was thinking wow this might be the most deadpan festival <laughs> you know ever. And yet, I've only seen twenty odd films out of one hundred and fifty. Who knows? Somebody else might see another twenty and say that you know it's larks. You know, it's chipper. <laughs> uh, have you seen Partisan? Because I, I would put that in that deadpan camp as well, and that's a really terrific film. No, I haven't seen Partisan. That's it, it is it was one that I that I had to um, uh, yeah, I just couldn't couldn't squeeze in. But I was, I, but I have seen uh, in previews quite a few of the documentaries in the festival, and uh, I tell you what, the, there's nothing that'll make you angrier about the state of the world than documentaries in the New Zealand International Film Festival. Oh, my <laughs> goodness. Much more so. I've been much more entertained by the features this year. But the documentaries are so rage-inducing. I take it you've seen Welcome to Leith, then? Uh, no, I haven't seen Welcome to Leith. Oh, but really? I was think No, wow. but I was thinking of Cartel Land and uh, Peace Officer, which made us just mad. And, of course, um, Alex Gibney's Scientology movie as well. Which Going clear, of course. Yeah. Well, so... Um, Yes, Cartel Land and um, Western is its uh, counterpart as well, which I highly recommend uh, by Turner Ross who's get, and his brother, who um, Turner Ross is a guest of the festival this year. But uh, yeah, both Welcome to Leith and um, Pervert Park were um, incredibly powerful, incredibly upsetting documentaries as well. Uh, and I suspect there's many more where that came from. But I've heard great things about Peace Officer, but haven't seen it yet. Yeah, Peace Officer is uh, it's, it's a it's a real slow burn of a, of a film, and and definitely worth looking at. I'm conscious that you uh, that that, that um, time is an issue for you because you've got to get back into into the city for the Duke of Burgundy. So what we'll do is we'll do some news now, and we'll come back to you for a second half of your uh, first week appreciation. Sounds good. Talk to you in a few. This morning, the BBC announced the result of their extensive poll to discover the 100 best American films ever made, at least according to 62 of the world's best-known critics. Unsurprisingly, Citizen Kane takes the top slot, but there are some surprises. Forrest Gump, for example, makes it into number 74, four places ahead of Thelma and Louise. Lots of Kubrick, Scorsese, Coppola, and Spielberg, as you would expect. The highest-placed film by a female director is... Maya Darren's experimental 1940 film, Meshes of the Afternoon, which definitely inspired me when I was at university learning film, um, and is only one of two in the list. Yeah, and... The, and What's with Citizen Kane? I don't get it. I'm sorry. Citizen really? Kane? Come on. That's still... It's amazing. Still. Is it's it? It's still amazing. Yep. Okay. Yep. 
We're gonna have we're gonna have to have we're gonna have to have an intervention here, aren't we? We're gonna have to sit you down, strap you to a chair, and I'm gonna have to explain how good it is at every moment. Okay, that that would help because cool. I've watched it a couple times. And I'm just like, mm-hmm. yeah, and okay, so that's a challenge to me. So to be to be a little bit more specific than, oh my god, that's amazing, right? Okay, <laughs> so but ne- but never mind because we've got we we have the Blu-ray here, and at some point the Coromandel Street Film Society will become a thing mm. and we'll start having proper discussions we have about to it. drink rosebuds while we're watching it though so at least i get some joy out of it yeah okay now but interestingly the of the two films that are directed by women in that in that 100 uh even the, the those two are co-directed by women like it's it's it, it's a, it's a bit pathetic isn't it really in terms of um what it says about 110 years of american movie history and about the critics. And about the critics, exactly. <laughs> and yet, now another thing that I thought was kind of funny about this is that this was a poll that was commissioned by um, BBC Culture, and which you know. And if I if if I was working for any part of the BBC that wasn't called BBC Culture, I'd feel a little bit insulted by that. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> what am I, chop liver? Oh. Um. As many of our listeners will know, Omar Sharif, the legendary Egyptian movie star from films like Lawrence of Arabia and Doctors of Vagio, passed away last week at the age of 83. Or Zhivago, even. Doctors of Zhivago. Is that how you say it? Oh, yeah. it is. I've been putting an extra eye in there for years. See, oh. your, your great friend Rebecca McMillan will be, will be extremely upset at that so mispronunciation great. because it's like her... Dr. Zhivago. Yeah. Um, and the funny thing is that I, I, I wrote that paragraph and even now I realize that... that what a nonsense it is because there are no films like Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> this Shivago. is what I deal with, listeners. So don't don't pull me on Zhivago. <sighs> and what has happened to F.W. Murnau's head, the German director who helped define cinema during the silent era with films like Sunrise and Nosferatu, has had his <laughs> Sonsdorf Germany grave defiled by sorry I shouldn't laugh defiled by robbers who stole the corpse's skull. What? Yeah. What is, oh, no one knows why, but suspicions of occult practices are rife. That's just a tad disrespectful, isn't it? <laughs> tad. Tad. Horrible. Doug Dilliman at Norkland. Uh, the second half of your first week appreciation of this year's New Zealand International Film Festival. Um is there anything else that you've sort of noticed that uh, might constitute a trend from your particular view, angle on the mountain? That's an interesting question. Um, I think that, uh, you know, films that are quite um, dense and have a lot in them to unpack. Uh, I'm thinking of the Arabian Nights trilogy uh, in part, which was as I mentioned, quite a big group. That's Miguel Gomez, who did Taboo, and he's come back with the three-film, six-and-a-half-hour pressies of um, Portugal's economic crisis is refracted through a structure inspired by the book Arabian Nights, even though the film explains that it is not an adaptation of it. Uh, it's as complicated and messy as it sounds. It's also joyous and, um, at times, absolutely brilliant and other times really frustrating, um, that description I'd also apply to um, uh, Tim Wong's film, Out of the Mist. I was going to ask you about that, actually. Yes, tell us. Yes. I, I saw that Monday night, and um, as you mentioned, I, I write for Lumiere, and I did um, have an early read of Tim's uh, script, uh, which is an essay film that uh, has been sold somewhat on the basis of uh, providing an alternate history 
of New Zealand cinema, which is the subtitle, and it is fantastic for the obscure uh, and underlooked films that it illuminates. But um, it's also a really potent and intellectually heady essay on questions like, you know, what is artistic identity? How are, um, why too often are creators uh, co-opted in their portrayal of a country by what's come before or the colonization of our imagination by, say, Lord of the Rings as Middle Earth or just our desire to photograph our bucolic countrysides in a certain way. Uh, why does our cinema tend to lack political engagement? Um, I'm covering just a very small taste of uh, the many questions that Tim raises in it. And um, he'll be, um, after this festival run, he'll be releasing it online, which is great because I think it deserves another look and a lot of engagement. I would encourage people to go see it because I found the Q&A actually as uh, rewarding as the film itself. And um, I would say some of the punches that Tim pulls in the film in terms of his opinions, he was a bit more open with in in that setting and, and perhaps some of his more um, provocative goals of the film. Uh, but I it is also quite yeah. dense. And I, I, I've talked to multiple people who felt like by the time they'd had the chance to um, absorb one point, two more were made. Um, I, I had a few, uh, we, we got a chance to see a, a preview, um, of that, of that, of that film before okay. Thursday and before I was on, on Radio New Zealand on Thursday. And, um, I, I really appreciated the, um, the depth and the intellectual heft of it and the challenge to the status quo. It occurred to me that I don't know how well it would stand to, uh, uh, for an audience that, that perhaps didn't have the prior background like it may, it may it may be that you actually need to have seen sam neill's film first <laughs> you know? perhaps yeah i mean there is a small excerpt of describing the cinema of anise but mm. if you don't um have the uh notion that we're a country that makes a lot of films of a man alone um it is something that's it's more glancingly discussed. Than yeah, it felt like a response to some to some things rather than uh, necessarily a. Uh, um, I mean, it, it turned into a much more um, uh, unique, uh, self-produced uh, essay rather than you know. But the but the first sort of couple of acts of the film certainly seemed like a response to existing um, arguments. What it, I I also had a wee bit of a problem with Eleanor Catton's. Um, uh, narration, and not because I have a problem with Eleanor Catton per se, because the last thing I'd want is her dad to leave comments on, <laughs> on on the on the website. But you know, I didn't think it was particularly well read, the commentary, and I would have loved to have had an actor do it, like an actual actor. Right. Yeah, I think I think I think certainly somebody with a bit more performative. Skill. I think also I I know the production history of it, and I know that the essay was read before the edit was complete, and so um, because of that, um, perhaps exactly what's being responded to on screen at a time or the points where there's a punctuation may not have been fully determined at the course of the reading. So I can I I think that yeah there there was there would probably be room for uh, that perhaps 
might have provided a better chance for Eleanor to um, sure. read in a way that was more contextual rather than reading it as a standalone. Sure, sure. It's a, it's it's still a monumental achievement, and if yeah. if anything. I, I really love that it exists because of its provo- provocations. And yeah, that- I mean, I said on Twitter that I think every filmmaker in this country should watch it and think about what they make because I, I as a filmmaker, I felt really challenged is, is the things that one just accepts or doesn't think about in their own work necessarily and or, or questions that might get blown past because you take them for granted. And I really hope that, it challenges people to try a bit harder. <laughs> Indeed. Um, and, and I would hate for anybody now that, because that was another thing that I th- thought of watching the film is, is the, is since Sam Neill's film, since cinema of, of, of unease, th- there's been this explosion of expressiveness in terms of our visual culture. And I don't think it's possible for any one film to actually sum it up anymore. No, well, that's certainly true. And I mean, Tim would tell you that for every film that's in there, there is another one that he would have to leave out either because of rights issues or um, other or just time or what have you. Um, and I can think of other films that I would bring up as counterexamples or or interesting related points. I mean, I'm, I'm particularly interested in the way that people use the um, aerial footage of Tony Monk, for instance, who... Um, is, does most of the aerial footage in this country, and I, I've used some of his stuff on various TV programs. And then I'll sit down to see a New Zealand-produced film, and it'll be the same footage that I've put to air on something for television. And that, um, and you know, it's a quick way to buy this sense of scope and um, epicness from the wilderness, and it's justified by our setting. But what are we losing by not thinking of another way to? characterize that yeah absolutely now you this is we're, we're just approaching the end of week one um yep. what are you looking forward to obviously you you're in, in a short time you're going to be heading into town to watch the duke of burgundy and Which i hope you're thrilled about yes. yeah and i hope that uh on friday morning when the show goes uh online you'll be able to listen to our interview with peter strickland uh which was um a, an interest an interesting conversation uh, perhaps not the easiest conversation that I've ever had in terms of uh, of interview, but uh, a, a very interesting man. So I hope that it proves illuminating for you. What else are you looking forward to over the next um, seven days or so? Uh, I, I'll have to check the exact days, but uh, Yakuza Apocalypse, the Takashi Miike movie, um, I'm really excited about. Um, this played at Cannes and is considered to be one of his, uh, you know, I mean, he makes a film most mornings before he leaves the house. So it's hard to know which ones to get excited about, but that's one <laughs> that uh, has met with a universal approval. Uh, and it's 130 minutes of just craziness and a guy in a giant frog suit, I believe. Um, and it's called Yakuza Apocalypse. So you pretty much know what you're getting into. Uh, and it's also programmed a film called Goodnight Mommy, which uh, is an Austrian film that's, Supposed to be a hyperclinical, hyper unsettling story about uh, young, two young children whose mother comes home from the hospital having had some kind of facial surgery and her face is covered with bandages, and they come to believe that she is not perhaps who she is. And uh, that is supposed to be a profoundly unsettling uh, experience. Uh, Another catch- film about a woman covered in bandages. There's a theme here. <laughs> <laughs> There are so many themes. Apparently, there, uh, yes, there's nudity. Um, as Balab Kayan number one, Memories of Overdevelopment, the Filipino film, 
um, with the director is going to be here. Just sounds fascinating. He started working on the film 35 years ago, uh, and then things went awry. He couldn't get it finished, put it aside, and then in recent years was inspired to shoot some new footage to put it together in this in this patchwork, and it played at Berlin to rapturous response. And uh, and it's again one of those visionary films that sounds like it'll be like nothing else in the um, festival. Oh, and of course, um, the assassin, the Ho Shao Shen film, which is playing on the Civic Saturday night as the centerpiece, and um, seeing him do a wuxia film on the giant screen. I mean, that's uh, one of my favorite genres. Um, whose films are sometimes quite a bit slow and sometimes quite a bit narratively confusing, but I'm hoping that just um, the aesthetics of it will be rapture and rapturous enough for me to uh, have it carry. Great. <laughs> hey there, Kaylee. Hi. Oh, no. Oh, my headphones have died. Oh. I, I, we haven't talked to you at all. Hopefully. Um, <laughs> Oh, that's okay. Sorry, my headphones just just died. In case listeners are like, "What?" No, that, that I've been listening intently. <laughs> it sounds great. I think we're looking forward to all the same films, and I think, um, yeah, having Kidlet at the Balak Bayan screenings is going to be a real hoop for everyone. So, I can't wait till he comes. He's like a real character, and um, yeah, and also the um, speaking of other visiting filmmakers, I, I forgot the fellow's name, but um, Finders Keepers, which I saw at the Auckland Preview, was a terrific documentary and it's in the incredibly strange section but it's one of those that um like king of kong a bit could easily play to a very mainstream audience even though it is about um two people fighting over a uh severed mummified foot uh yeah their twitter handle is leg in grill it's brilliant <laughs> yeah and and it's and it starts off as kind of a, a sort of a classical like kind of documentary good guy bad guy the you know the good guy is the one that lost the foot the bad guy is the one who is trying to profit off it and then it really um nicely complicates that and just keeps digging into its character's humanity even while the circumstances get reach almost absurd levels of caricature around it uh and i was just really impressed with the filmmakers first of all just eking a feature out of um you know, it sounds like almost a gag kind of concept, but also just keeping their eyes so close to their characters and not being like, oh, yeah, that's a crazy idea. It'll carry and walking away at a certain point with what would have been a much lesser film. Doug Dillerman, thank you very much for your time. I, I, I know how hard it is to eke out a, a little window of time to talk to us during the, <laughs> during the middle of the film festival. We really appreciate you uh, visiting with us virtually here at Rancho Notorious. My pleasure, Dan. Good talking to you and good hearing from you very briefly, Kaylee. And I uh, hope you guys have a great fest down there. Uh, thanks very much to Doug for, uh, for his time. And I know that he's going to be interested in this next segment of the show because um, last Friday morning, uh, relatively early, well, early enough, frankly, um, I got to uh, have a conversation with the director, Peter Strickland, who uh, has a film in the New Zealand International Film Festival called The Duke of Burgundy. Um, eagle-eared uh, listeners will be familiar with, uh, well, they'll be familiar with the reputation, I think, of uh, Barbarian Sound Studio, uh, a film that I think only managed like three uh, screenings here in New Zealand and so uh, was not the easiest film to, um, to track down. Anyway, he is one of the unique film voices in the world um and uh yeah we spoke on uh the on on the telephone on friday morning and it was it was an interesting conversation
Peter Strickland, the uh, writer and director of The Duke of Burgundy, welcome to Rancho Notorious. Thank you. Hello. <laughs> Peter, um, I, I was reading uh, a little bit about you uh, in preparation for this uh, for this interview and starting with, uh, like all good interviews, with Wikipedia. Um, and uh, it said that you, you live in Eastern Europe. Where are you, where are you calling us from? Hungary. Wow. And, and how is Hungary at the moment? Uh, it's like an oven. Uh, it's unbearably hot. It's uh, 27 degrees inside the apartment. And Hungary is where Duke of Burgundy was shot, was it not? Uh, shot, but not set. Right, yes. I was going to ask... I'm not sure where it's set, but um, yeah, we, we, we shot it all in Hungary. Well, the 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 premise of the film uh, is it, it's almost as if it's set in some kind of parallel universe rather than uh, than anything that we that that we might be familiar with. I mean, it's 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 familiar, but it's 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 also very strange. T tell me about the genesis of the story. Uh, well, it was um, it was just a chance to explore um, how people negotiate uh, desire um, and I think the right framework for that seem to be not how can I say this um, so yeah I mean I was looking at a lot of Eurosleeve films um, and that was like a starting point really to explore how people compromise in a relationship um, and even though we started with, with these references from Franco, from Roland and Alan Rob Greeley and so on, the film turned out into something quite, quite different, quite domestic, even though it has this kind of ex exotic, decadent feel. To me, it's like a domestic drama. And was that, was that something you discovered during the process of creating it, or was that something that you were wanting to get to um, at conception? Um, you're never quite sure where it goes. I mean, I, I, I guess, yeah, I wanted to look at, um, what I wanted to do from the beginning was take these tropes from, from a lot of the genre films where you'd have a dominant woman, you know, like, you know, the classic stereotype, you know, the prison warden, the, the, the maid, not the maid, sorry, the, um, stern mistress. Um, and I think what was interesting about a lot of the films from that period, they were always in character. They'd always be on cue, um, and I wanted to see someone who, um, it's all artists, they actually, that's a persona they're putting on, and actually, they're not like that at all. So I want to see them miss their cues, I want to see them snoring at night in their pyjamas. Um, that was quite clear from the start. Where where we went with that, I wasn't quite sure until, <laughs> until the last day of editing. <laughs> um, something else that uh, um, really f uh, fascinated uh, fascinated me was the was the was the fact that the entire community, not just this, uh, not not just our central couple, were uh, essentially um, rabid lepidopterists and uh, extremely uh, knowledgeable about uh, about butterflies and moths. What, what where did that idea come from? Oh, again, I think it's just about finding this kind of framework for the film. And um, since the whole film is very, kind of, what's the word? It's like, it's like a a fetish film, and um, it's all about textures and surfaces. So you know, all these insects and their wings and, and their the whole texture of, of, of that kind of somehow it just added to this whole intense look and feel. And um, 
they're not meant to be symbolic of anything. Like, the, the only the only symbolic thing was when when uh, Cynthia gives her last lecture and talks about um, all these insects basically hibernating and everything is dying. You know, it's, it's the autumn. Um, with this mole cricket lying dormant in, in its tomb, that kind of mirrored Evelyn's deepest wishes somehow. The my partner and I watched this film uh, a week or so ago, and uh, when I told her that I was interviewing um, you this morning, she said, "Really? I could have sworn it was directed by a woman." And I mean, how does how does how does an observation like that make you feel? She she seemed to think that it was just incredibly insightful about um, about uh, uh, female intimacy. Um. It's strange because I, I kind of had the Duke in the title almost as a reference of the fact that, you know, it's made by a, a male. Um, because I, I, I feel it would be um, quite arrogant to say I, I can adopt this female gaze. Um, it's, I think the only thing I can do is be less male <laughs> by, you know, not being so directional with the camera. Okay, this one classic male shot where the camera goes up Cynthia's skirt. But otherwise, we tried quite hard to just not be mechanical with the camera and not, not be directional um, and just focus more on the ambience of what is happening and so on. Um, I mean, it's strange for me because I think a lot of those films that explored love between women were mostly made by, by men. And I think the audience tended to mostly be male heterosexual. <laughs> mm. um, so we wanted to kind of take that and take that whole notion and push it even to a more absurd corner by having it all women somehow. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, obviously it's great that someone said it doesn't feel male, <laughs> but um, I couldn't say that my, myself. <laughs> uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, the the world that you've created and the, and, and the, the detail, because, I, mean, I mean, there's a... I love how the film sets up uh, a particular aesthetic that it then sort of proceeds to undermine um, as we get closer into the story and the and the relationship and uh, you know that that uh, the inspiration of that of the, those sorts of uh, sex exploitation films of the seventies uh, it 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 it, uh, it doesn't deliver on those uh, on those um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for. Um, uh, those hints, if you know what I mean. Um, where, what, what sort of films were your inspiration for it, and how, and how did you go about recreating that? I, I just, just, I'll just drop in an aside. I was very uh, interested to, uh, at the excitement that Quentin Tarantino had recently that he'd found the original Ben Hur lenses to shoot <laughs> his latest film. All oh, right, yeah, and, I, I read that. Yeah, yeah. So I'm wondering, um, did, did you, did you, yeah, we, how, did you go back to uh, like original materials? We didn't find any lenses, no. Well, what we did find was um, Monica Swin, who was in, I think she, she was in 23 Jess Franco films. That was something, especially, you know, after shooting. We, we, she was kind of dying out on all these stories about Franco. Um, but for me, I think the inferences were quite loose, so there was never any attempt to kind of, how do I say, you know, do this kind of tribute to, to all that. I think all these ideas were, were, were just, you know, starting points. I think any Franco fan would be quite, you know, let down by seeing this film. 
Um, I think the other influences were, I think, uh, The Beach by Claude Chabrol. What else? Uh, Fassbinder's work. There's this Czech film called Morgiana by Judai Hertz, which has this kind of wonderful, um, decadent, gothic feel to it. So you just kind of... Uh, taking all these influences and somehow vomiting them out <laughs> into something, you know, hopefully which has that flavor but is still, still something that works. I think that I'm hoping, you know, you don't need to know all those films to not, work out no. you know, the whole logic of. Not not in advance, perhaps, but it, but um, it's uh, we'll, we'll certainly put um, links to information about those films in the show notes for this show, so that um, once people have seen the Duke of Burgundy, maybe they can go and uh, investigate further. Uh, something that uh, I was that, that was very noticeable to me from an aesthetic point of view is that you've seemed to have uh, you know rediscovered the lost art of the Zoom. Yeah, I love the Zoom. It's, um, and, and it's just something that, that modern filmmakers, now that maybe it's, it's that cameras are so easy to move around themselves, you don't need, that people don't feel like they need to do that stuff optically. Yeah, it's funny because uh, so many directors kind of frown upon the, the Zoom. Uh, it's seen as this kind of cheap tactic. Um, I think if you slow it down, it has this wonderful magnetic quality to it. Um and it doesn't feel like it's pastiche if, if you have it really, really slow. So, I, I, I mean, all these things, it's all about, you know, it's all about context and moderation and so on. But, um, I've got a big spider on me, so I just need to glide off. Um, <laughs> I'm outside by a stream. Um, but, um, let all webs on me. Oh, silk. Um, what was I saying? Yeah, so for me, uh, it's all about. What, what 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 the scene needs, but I think when when you're trying to capture um, Evelyn under this sexual spell, um, the zoom it works so well. I think combining that with um, all these mirrors, well, actually, it's like mirrors, which is always uh, frowned upon. <laughs> I think we, we did a lot of things which are frowned upon. You know, using sexploitation, smoke and mirrors, zooms. Um, You've broken all the rules. But yeah, I think, uh, well, I wouldn't say that. I mean, we just we just use things which are kind of um, look look down on. But I always liked um, work that was that the snobs would lay into. <laughs> And and yet I'm I'm sure um, that the, 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 there are cinephile snobs that um, that will claim you as their own. Um, I don't want to claim as anyone's own. It's very nice, but <laughs> I'm happy to be an outsider. Um, well, maybe not that happy because you know, yeah, I, uh, well, who knows? Yeah, you've made you've made I mean, as, long as, as long as I can keep going. That's the thing. You know, it's hard to make a living. You know, doing these small films. Um, that, that, that's why I I, I I don't live in the UK. I mean, I couldn't make these these small films. I live in London. There's just no way. 
That was going to be my next question, actually, because after three three feature films in in six years, uh, and uh, and I was reading that uh, you know a radio play uh, recently for for the BBC, so that's a bit of a, a, a change of direction for you. But what what are you working on next, and what's the what's the next Peter Strickland that we can look forward to at something like the New Zealand International Film Festival? Oh, in terms of film, uh, it's going to be a long wait, I think, because I'm doing another radio play this year. Um, I, I mean, for me, I, I find it very, very difficult to write a, a, a new script if I'm still promoting a, a current film. I mean, I'm, my headspace, I have to be in, in, in one world at a time. So uh, it's funny because I was speaking to someone quite young who has yet to, yet to make the first feature, and I, I think I, I said I really envy you because you, you have time to just write script after script um, it's something I, I, I can't do. Um, so I really envy that time that younger people have. Just right. <laughs> We're coming to the end of our allotted time, unfortunately, and I wanted to say thank you, thank you very much for actually letting us into into your into your head for this uh, brief moment. And your film is playing at the New Zealand International Film Festival uh, uh, all over the country uh, from uh, this week. And uh, good luck with all of your future endeavours, and I hope it's not too long a delay f before we see your next film. No, hopefully soon. I'm, I'm going to start writing, I think, in, in August, so let's see what happens. I mean, I have no idea, yet, but yeah, hopefully. <laughs> and hopefully, hopefully you find somewhere air-conditioned. Yeah, yeah, you can say that again, yeah. Peter Strickland uh, there on the line from uh, a, sunny, a sunny park in Hungary. Uh, mm. And um, yeah, fun, interesting, interesting conversation, and uh, and I hope that that uh, provokes people to go and check out the Duke of Burgundy, which we here uh, really enjoyed. This is a this is a, a classic example of a film where the way it has been sold by the New Zealand International Film Festival in the program note is, I suspect, kind of deliberately misleading. So it ain't what you think it's going to be, and uh, it's a much much more interesting. It goes in much more interesting directions than you think it's going to go to as well. So um, that is, ladies and gentlemen, our show for this fortnight. Thank you all for listening. If you're in Wellington this Sunday, uh, come and join me and maybe Kaylee. You're going to be coming along to this screening on Sunday afternoon of Belief, The Possession of Janet Moses, a film uh, made here in Wellington. Um, I'll be introducing that screening as well as hosting a Q&A with the director David Stubbs afterwards. That's at 5.30 on Sunday afternoon, the 26th of July. If for some reason you can't make it to that screening, we're going to try and record the Q&A. Try. Not sure how yet. Uh, so we can play the best of it here on uh, next fortnight's episode, but uh, very and much I, looking forward to it. And I highly recommend going to the film. It's an incredible incredible film yeah and this is uh this is going to be uh, in wellington your only chance to uh to see it with the director in attendance and it's the world premiere oh really oh so it's not getting uh, auckland screenings it is getting Auckland screenings but, but it's but it's yeah the the belief is specifically having a wellington world premiere um because it is a wellington regional story hoo-ha mm. so i'm going to be hosting a world premiere yay mm. for me um if you've enjoyed this episode if you're still with us you can subscribe to our show at funeralsandsnakes.net forward slash Rancho Notorious, where you'll find ways to communicate with us uh, either via email. I won't read the email address out because it's fiendishly complicated. You're better off just clicking the link. Um, or you can make a comment on the website too. 
You can follow us on Twitter at Rancho Podcast. That's R-A-N-C-H-O Podcast, all one word, where we like to tweet about things we think are interesting. And you can interact with us on Letterboxd, too, thanks to the lovely Reese Pie. Our username is Rancho Notorious, all one word. And we are going to get an Instagram. We, we are. Yeah, well, yeah. Eventually. Yeah, but we'll tweet you about it. <laughs> It'll just be pictures of cats for now. Yeah. And us true. doing stuff looking like jerks, I guess. <laughs> like, yeah, here we are at this event. Um, somebody, I, I, had a, I had a drink with, actually, what, what am I talking about? Somebody somebody who's been on the show, Ben Woodward, who was on the show to talk about Mad Max. A few, I was having a beer with him last night, and he uh, was trying to explain a Periscope to me. Yes. Which is basically live streaming a video from your phone. Mm. And so uh, there's the potential, I think, you know, why the heck not? Why don't we um, periscope some of the show out to the world one day just to see how Because we need a periscope technician to do it while we're talking because I don't think we'd be able to multitask. We have a hard enough time just getting the sounds to work. Yeah, true. Okay, so uh, maybe we'll get We're taking volunteers for Periscope technicians. (laughs) Right. This show, this show is a Funerals and Snakes production. Season three is, in fact, every season is executive produced by Robert Cato, Random Films, Claire Coray, Mark Cuby, Anthony S. Pratt, Fred Thompson, and Matthew Buchanan. The theme music at the beginning of the show is Ennio Morricone's the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly by Los Plantronics. You can buy that at the iTunes store just by searching Los Plantronics or presumably The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. You can, uh, And we're going to play you out with some more music uh, from the soundtrack of the very, very amusing While We're Young by Noah Baumbach. Here's Pop Sensations, Heim, and uh, the Duke Dumont remix of their single, Fallen. I don't, now, I'm an old person, so I don't know too much about them, but I'm given to understand that they, they're friends with Lord. Am I right? So yes. Can you tell me that? Yes. And... Taylor Swift. Right, so that con- that contextualizes these young people, uh, and the music is lovely. So uh, thanks very much to Doug Dilliman for visiting with us virtually here at Rancho Notorious. Thanks to Kaylee, as always. Big thanks to my swellegant partner, Karen, who makes sure that everyone who visits us here at Rancho Notorious is well-fed, well-watered, and well-looked after. To uh, Sebastian, our sous chef, and Ian, who may or may not be helping out in the kitchen. We don't know if he's arrived or not. Um, Anyway, thanks to everybody. Once again, thanks to all of you for listening. Without you, we are nothing. We're off for dinner now, so that's good evening from me, Dan Slevin. And good evening from me, Kaylee. Don't stop, no, I'll never give up. And I'll never look back. Just hold your head up. And if it gets rough, it's time to get up. They keep saying, don't stop, no one's ever enough. I'll never look back, never give up. And if it gets rough, it's time to get rough. Oh, but now I'm falling. Don't stop, no, I'll never give up. And I'll never look back. Just hold your head up. And if it gets rough, it's time to get up. They keep saying, don't stop, no one's ever enough. I'll never look back, never give up. And if it gets rough, it's time to get rough. Oh, 